to Exodus 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 29. This is the eighth and the ninth plagues in that which God used to strike the Egyptians. He wants his people to be set free to serve him. And so these two plagues are meant to accomplish that. Now, as, you, as we walk through Exodus, you notice that God keeps getting glory in two directions. He gets glory by conquering his enemies, and he gets glory by loving his people with grace. And so we read chapter 10, verses 1 through 29. Our own confession, Westminster Confession of Faith reminds us that it is not just the preaching of God's Word that is effectual. It is also the reading of God's Word. And so when we read, we give a, a reverent attention to it because this isn't uh, man's thoughts. This is actually God's Word to us. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants." And of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. 
So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Here's God's word. Lord, we recognize in this text that you are speaking not just to Pharaoh, but to your people. And so we pray that you would give to us the ears that we must have. They're spiritually given, and so we ask that you would grant us the hearing that we need. And Father, would you wield in your hand an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me, and through my mouth point the narrow way to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In English, you, you might say something like beating a dead horse. The point's already been made, but the person who's making the point just keeps talking and talking to make sure that you really do understand. You know people like that. Maybe you think I'm one of those kind of people. There's a sense in which you read these 10 plagues and you begin to think that way. I wonder if you're tired of the plagues. I mean, are you, are you tired of, of reading about more and more devastation and more and more stubbornness from Pharaoh and seemingly no movement in the story? We're now studying numbers 8 and 9. But every time you read another plague, you wonder, what more does God have to say in order to get his people out of Egypt? Isn't God beating a dead horse and yet Pharaoh persists? Could it be that this is precisely how you're supposed to feel? When you come to this point of Scripture, could it be that you're supposed to feel the the wave, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, with this repeated pattern? First, Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning, and then he goes in to Pharaoh, and then lastly, he strikes without warning? I think you're supposed to feel tired at this point. I think that's precisely what the narrator is doing. Why? Because this isn't just written down for Pharaoh. It is written down for you and me. These events didn't just happen to get Pharaoh's attention. There's there's a people watching over in Goshen. There's, There's the people of Israel and their slaves. 
Cornelius Houtman says these plagues are not just meant to impress Pharaoh and all inhabitants of the earth with Yahweh's powerful deeds. They're also meant to teach Israel. Israel must know and believe that all power and dominion belongs to Yahweh and acknowledge him as Lord. Oh, for sure, God intends to to bend the king so that he will acknowledge Yahweh as Lord. God says, the whole world, Pharaoh, is in my grip. You must obey me. But there are also Hebrew slaves who are watching And in just a few moments, God will carry them to the edge of Egypt, and they will be asking the question, should I step into the water? Because there's a desert on the other side of the water. He's letting them see so that they begin to acknowledge God's power and his dominion. They must say, I will trust the Lord. I'll surrender to his will and walk forward into things that I cannot see. I wonder if some of you are not standing today on the edge of a proverbial desert. You look ahead to circumstances that are unknown, uncertain. And maybe it feels to you like the Lord has beaten the proverbial dead horse. Already you know about his his power and his authority over you. The question is, do you remember his tenderness? Do you remember his steadfast love? And as you stand there on the edge of Egypt looking out into the desert, what else is left? Well, what's left is for you to know, to acknowledge, but then also to move ahead in faith. Exodus 10 basically says, because all power belongs to God, you must acknowledge Christ as Lord. So the lesson of the locusts, the issue of darkness, the matter of control. We start with the lesson of the locusts. One of the ways that you're meant to feel that this is past time for Pharaoh to listen is this repeated phrase, how long? And as the story begins, the narrator takes you and me as readers to a vantage point of our understanding. I don't know if you've recognized the way he does this. This is profound. Beginning in verse 3, it feels like you and I join Aaron and Moses as we're ushered in to Pharaoh's presence. And we look over and we watch Moses open his mouth again to remind Pharaoh, here's my warning, let God's people go that they may serve him. And then he goes on to explain right off of that cusp the consequences of Pharaoh's continued stubbornness. Take a look at verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the whole land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and all your Egyptians. And you're looking over at Moses as he says, nobody's ever seen the likes of what God is about to do. And then he turns on his heels and he walks out the door. And you're meant to feel as you stand there watching how ominous, how foreboding. But the narrator doesn't shut the door to Pharaoh's court. He actually leaves the door open And so you and I are standing there listening as Pharaoh's servants ask the question that God's already asked. Verse 7, how long? Will you just let these men go? 
Egypt is totally ruined. What more do you want to bring? And then for a moment, you get the glimpse, a sense almost, that this is going to work. Moses and Aaron are called back in. Sure, you can go serve Yahweh. One quick question I have before you go. Who else do you think you're going to take with you? Moses answered, all of us. Young and old, males and females, flocks and herds. Where did Moses get that idea? Because God told him that everyone was to be a part of worship. Because worship is a family event. The Egyptians have no concept of that. I mean, Pharaoh can't even really imagine why women and children would be a part of of legitimate worship. Pagans think that worship is just you and this little miniature idol. But gods don't receive women and children. More than that, only men really have access to the gods. Yahweh says no. All of them must worship me because all of them belong to me. Number one, it's a massive comfort. The same God who looked on the Hebrew slaves and said, all of them are mine. This is the same God who looks upon his people through Jesus Christ. And he come, to those who come to him in faith, he says, all of these are mine. This is a God who welcomes children and females, whole families. He owns you and he loves you and so he summons you to come and worship him together. But second, this is a massive summons to you. Fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, children, Worship is a family affair. You and your family belong to God. Which means you should bring one another together to be a part of public worship. There are tenderhearted people, I'm sure, who will hear this and they will go, well, I, I don't know if he knows we've been sick and maybe he's talking to me. I don't want you to be troubled. When you're sick, just... Know that we miss you and get well and then come back. You're missed. On the other hand, there's people who could join the local church a long time ago. And then they just develop a pattern or habit of of not coming or not coming very often because life has just gotten too busy and too hard and, well, we travel a lot. There's too many new people at Christ Pres now. And, of course, we've got to carry the children in the bags and you got to get showers and get dressed and be there on time. The danger is that what happens is that every single Sunday becomes a new excuse for why you won't come with your family and worship the Lord. I do want you to know, those of us who have been parents know exactly how hard that is. But I wonder if you might look at your little ones and recognize that what you're doing is helping them exercise a muscle that they would not otherwise have. Everybody around you is okay. If they squirm, 
If they talk, I'm okay. If you have to get up and move, it's all okay. Here's what might be helpful, though. You might want to look over your calendar over the last three or four months. Again, I'm not talking about people who've been sick. Not talking about people who've had life events that are major. Those are usually the folks who actually want to be in worship the most. But if you look at your calendar and you can say, I actually haven't been at worship in three or four or five or six months, or maybe I just go once a month, it's probably not a scheduling problem. It's a priorities problem, which is then a spiritual problem that is worth examining. See, God says, all of you belong to me, and I want all of you to worship me. Now, the obstacle that is obvious to you when an application is drawn like this from verse 9 is that those who aren't at worship aren't at worship to be reminded to come to worship. I can't control that, and neither can you. But God can. And so we just pray that by God's word and his spirit, he draws his people back. For those who may hear my voice on audio or video, it's not a browbeating. God loves you. His people love you, and and they want you back among them. You're missed and loved, and you're designed by God to be a worshiper in his church among his people. Let's transition. Even the question that Pharaoh asks tells us that he still thinks the Hebrew people belong to him. As if God needs to clear it with the king before his people can come and worship him. And so when Moses levels with him, the monarch becomes furious and his tone shifts to sarcasm. Our sermon gets its title from verse 10. The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. You have some evil purpose in mind. Pharaoh's sarcasm is only matched by God's irony. It's Pharaoh who has evil purposes. And he will never, quote unquote, let God's people go. But God will let his people go and the Lord will be with them and he will be with their little ones every single step of the way throughout the journey to the promised land. Now locusts. The last plague crushed every crop that had grown up out of the ground. And at this point, the the wheat and the emmer have come up. West winds are blowing across Egypt as people stand back and they go, oh, finally some crops. And this beautiful wind causes the wheat to sway. And Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to obey God. So God sent a wind, not from the west, but from the opposite direction, an east wind all day and all night. And when morning comes, there is a dense cloud settled on the land, and these locusts are hungry. Look at verse 15. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit on the trees that the hail had left, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. You already know God's making a mockery of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Scholars tell us that the Egyptians worshipped men who was the patron of the crops. They worshipped a goddess named Isis. 
who was the goddess of life, Napri, the goddess, the god of the grain, or Anubis, the guardian of the field, Senehem, the divine protector against pests. These are the false gods that they trusted in to feed them. And we are much more savvy than they are. We don't trust those gods. We trust Kroger, Publix, neighborhood Walmart. Of course, now the, the pandemic and the supply chain problems have given me a moment of, of scare. I don't really know where to turn when my coffee creamer is not in stock. I don't really know what to do when Rice Krispies become scarce. See, I'm so far from the supply chain. I'm so far from the way food is brought to the table that I actually think that my hard work earns me the money and then Kroger is the one who feeds me. And then I'm annoyed at Kroger if he can't feed me. Friends, the lesson of the locusts is that every single thing that you hold in your hand comes from God. Every bite you eat provided because he is generous and he feeds you. And one of the ways that you remind yourself that everything you have comes from God is that you pause before you eat your meals and you simply say, thank you, God, for giving me this food. It's such a simple gesture. It's not to be used in order to appease an angry God. It's to be used to shape your heart. Your prayer of thanks isn't you blessing the food as if you have to remove a curse. It's you giving thanks that God has already blessed you with food to eat and clothes to wear and shelter and every other possession that you hold in your hands. The plague of locusts isn't just here to punish Pharaoh. It's sent because the people of Israel are watching. And in a very short time, they will stand on the edge of the desert where there is no food and there is no water. And God will summon them ahead saying, believe me, I provide. I'm the God who feeds and nourishes you. Maybe some of you are facing a desert today. What seems like a pretty dry, potentially uncertain space? Would it help you to see that the same God who blesses you with simple food to eat is also trustworthy to provide for every other need you have? In every dry and uncertain place that he calls you, Seeing what you see, knowing what you know, will you step forward in faith? Will you obey the voice of the God who says, I'm generous and I'm gracious? Will you trust him to provide all of your needs in things that you cannot see? Because all power belongs to God, you must acknowledge Christ as Lord. The lesson of the locusts, let's look at the issue of darkness. Our words have no effect on Pharaoh clearly. This ninth plague follows the same pattern as three and six. It's a direct strike with no warning. If you've ever been out of a city at night when there is no, sh- no shining from the city around you, you know how beautiful the night sky can be. 
How God has fashioned stars in heaven to give light, but not too much, so that it is dark and you can rest. It's glorious, isn't it? That's not what the ninth plague is. The ninth plague is terror-inducing. It's, it's oppressive. It's empty and crushing in its weight. Which is why the text says this is a darkness to be felt. Most of us don't know that kind of darkness. If you've ever explored a cave with a flashlight and some friends, that's as close as you'll get. Not too far down into the belly of the earth. Even with all your friends around you, if you flick off that flashlight, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. And if everybody sits quietly, you know what it means to feel the weight of darkness. This is a plague that is terrifying because God is offended. The Egyptians worshipped several gods that were associated with the sun. One, of, one for the sunrise, his name was Horus. Another for the round midday sun named Aten. Another for the sunset, Atum. But really represented in the sun is what they saw as the supreme deity, Amon-Ri. And they ascribed to him these words. I am the great God who came into being of himself. He who created names and he who has no opponent among the gods. So the Egyptians believed that Amon-Ri, represented in the sun, was their creator. That he was unique among all other gods. That would be enough to be offensive to Yahweh. Romans 1 says they exchanged the worship of the creator for the creation, the sun. But here's the issue with darkness. The Egyptians also believed that Pharaoh was the sun of Amon-Ri, what one writer called a personal embodiment of the solar deity. Egypt's king was Egypt's god. And as the incarnation of Amon-Ri, he allegedly maintained control of the cosmic order until three days when he couldn't, until three days when he didn't, until three days when God simply placed his hand over Amon-Ri and then also blinded his son. If you know the story of the Bible, you know why this is such an offense to God. As the Nicene Creed from 325 AD says, there is only one Son of God, Jesus, and He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, and He's begotten, He's not made, and He is of one substance with the Father. Yahweh, this God who dwells in three persons, as we prayed earlier, sent forth his Son, Jesus Christ, to put on flesh. So that Colossians 1 says, Jesus alone is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus was present and created the heavens and earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. You see why there's no place for an earthly king to stand with the likes of Yahweh and his Messiah. You aren't worshiping the sun god, though, are you? It's not really your temptation, even if you have a good tan, even if you enjoy being out by the pool in the summer. 
It's not the sun that you think of as your supreme deity. Most of us put another supreme deity there instead. We serve the God of self. He governs what you do. He governs what you think about. He governs how you spend money or make plans. Self is the God you serve when you decide in what tone you're going to communicate with that person who has frustrated you. Self is the the first God that you consider when an opportunity to serve at the church comes up and you decide whether you'll delete the email or read it or whether you'll even be a part of serving other people. Self is the first God that you consider when you make the decision that someone else really needs to serve you. I wonder if there is another unworthy, a God that is more unworthy and yet who shines more brightly in your eyes than the God of self. From the moment you rise to the moment you go to bed, would you ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart so that you will stop serving and worshiping this self? Would you lay down this idol and repent of it and ask Christ to teach you to die to that idol of self each day? put on Christ as the one who carries the throne. Now, what would be unclear to the first readers is not unclear to us today. You neither serve, you either serve Amon-Ri and his pseudo-son Pharaoh, or you serve Yahweh and his only begotten son, Christ. In the Bible, darkness is a sign of judgment. It's a, it's a warning of impending death. And so one commentator said the account assumes the existence of an unbreakable joint fate between ruler and subjects. Being linked with Pharaoh or Yahweh implies different treatment. Union with Pharaoh means death. Union with Yahweh means life. Take a look at verse 23. You'll see exactly what I mean. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. It's a, it's a miracle beyond comprehension, as if a circular curtain was dropped around Goshen, the people of God in the light and the people of Pharaoh in the darkness, a physical picture of a spiritual reality. God makes the point, and Pharaoh understands. Egypt and the world is in the iron grip of the God of the Hebrews. By the ninth plague, judgment looms. And your outcome, your survival or destruction, is determined by the God that you decide or acknowledge to be Lord. Who is your God? If the Lord is your God, will you bathe the idol of self in blood, in the blood of Jesus Christ? Philip Ryken says when your God is the sun and the sun gets blotted out, you're left with only emptiness and dread. And I would add to that, if your God is self and God blots out your perceived power, when he brings you to the end of yourself, you're left with emptiness and dread. But if Christ is your Savior, then you belong to the Lord and you dwell in the light because all power belongs to God 
you must acknowledge Christ as Lord. The lesson of the locust, the issue of darkness, we're going to close with the matter of control. It's actually a little bit hard to avoid this topic all the way through the study. Let's go back to verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you, serve, will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. I, I quoted it earlier. These plagues are not just meant to impress Pharaoh. They're meant to teach Israel. Israel must know and believe that all power and dominion belongs to Yahweh and acknowledge him as Lord. And so 29 verses hang on this question. How long? How long, Pharaoh, are you going to pretend that you have control anywhere? The question is asked in verse 3, and then it's repeated by his servants in verse 7. And then you have two occasions where the king is brought to his knees and he thinks that he can negotiate the terms of Israel's release. Verse 8, go serve God. But then verse 11, just the men can go. And then again, verse 24, okay, go serve the Lord. You can take your women and your children. Don't take your flocks. The question of the text is control. Who really reigns? Three times in the passage, the answer is stated, obviously, verse 1, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 20, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Verse 27, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't really sound like Pharaoh is in control. Someone might say, well, that's unfair. It's unfair until you remember that the vast majority of the other times that we've heard about Pharaoh's heart We've read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Or Pharaoh's heart was hard. And so why is the change so emphatically stated here? Because all along the king thought he was in control. But what this statement makes clear is that the man who thought he could defy Almighty God with a high hand as if he not only controlled his own heart, but he controlled the world around him? Now it becomes obvious that the end result of hardening your heart toward God is that he gives you exactly what you thought you wanted, but it's not control. The matter of control is also the only way to explain Pharaoh's tears. Look at verse 16. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. You notice that? He's begging Moses to forgive his sins, not God. He's begging Moses' forgiveness for just this once, as if it's the only time that he has sinned. He's begging Moses to plead with God for him, but not for forgiveness, just to remove the locusts. Pharaoh will not relinquish control 
He will not fall down on his face in repentance towards God. He is a living illustration of what was read as our New Testament lesson. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. He's just like Jesus' warning back in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That is the one who surrenders to God the matter of control. Why is God doing all of this? Because at the end of the day, the matter of control is really a matter of the heart. God is building a family. That's what verse 2 says. Tender-hearted children and grandchildren who know his power and happily surrender to his control. The Egyptians thought Amon-Ri reigned in the sky and Pharaoh reigned on earth. Perhaps the temptation for you and me is to believe that God reigns in the sky, but I, the God of self, reign here on earth, or at least in my own heart. The Bible says you don't. Christ reigns here on earth, and he must reign in your heart right here. Because all power belongs to God, you must acknowledge Christ as Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray that you will draw us near to Christ and strengthen us in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.